Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Grieving comes in many different forms. In the play, She Kills Monsters, the main character uses the game Dungeons and Dragons to connect with her younger sister after a fatal accident. Elm Street Cultural Arts Village in Woodstock is streaming the play, and we'll hear about it later this hour. Daryl Farley will tell us why he has written an illustrated storybook affirming the role of black fathers in their children's lives. And first, Alicia Garza the founder of the International Black Lives Matter movement, has said the civil rights movement was not one period in history, but in fact, several periods. The struggle for equality began during the Jim Crow years, around the turn of the 20th century, and continues today. With that in mind, Jackson Fine Art will exhibit collections from the celebrated photographers Steve Shapiro and Sheila Pre-Bright that highlight civil rights movements. The artists are with us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you. Steve, you got to witness and photograph some of the most pivotal moments of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. What has it been like for you to witness today's civil unrest? Everything is different in a sense. It's the same, but it's very different in the sense that uh, in the 60s, the, uh, the movement was nonviolent, church-directed, and basically all the police were, and all the troopers were against the movement. I thought that they worked with protest in a very clever way in the sense that protest to me succeeds when your opponent is baited to do something drastic, which happened with O'Connor and other people like that. In other words, 
the Birmingham meeting in, in the park would never have been popular in any way without the dogs and the fire hoses being turned on people. So today we have a very different situation. Black Lives Matter starts out as a movement very similar. It's not totally church-driven, but it's a nonviolent movement. But we're having, and certainly the country has reflected on that and the enormous turnouts in all the cities has been fantastic. And it really showed so much support for the movement and for Black Lives Matter today. The only problem is that whereas in the civil rights period, the violence that did occur was occurred by the segregationists. And today, whereas we have such a pure movement of Black Lives Matter, we also have this other group which is zooming into what this is with violence and with, with just looting. I mean, I live in Chicago and Monday night, there was this enormous looting where people came in on a cavalcade of SUVs and just looted stores, broke windows and everything else. And what happens is that's getting slightly confused with the Black Lives Matter, which everyone really loves. And that's a problem. So let's go on from there. Your mayor, Lori Lightfoot, made the point that these acts had nothing to do with rightful, peaceful protests, indeed. Now, your part of the exhibition is titled In Celebration of the Fire Next Time, Civil Rights Photographs from the 2019 publication of The Fire Next Time, which is an illustrated volume of James Baldwin's classic text. You knew James Baldwin very well, and I read that he was your introduction into civil rights. That's quite an auspicious introduction. Would you talk about how your relationship began? This was totally my introduction. What happened was um, <clears throat> Jimmy wrote a piece in The New Yorker, which later was turned into a good part of The Fire Next Time. This was in I believe October 1962. I read it and I was very, very impressed with it and taken by it. I had started freelancing for Life magazine and I asked Life if I could do an essay on Baldwin. They agreed, he agreed, he was in Paris. He came back and we started traveling. He, he had a book tour throughout the South. And we started traveling together in January uh, 1963. And it was an enormous experience. I was a New Yorker who really had not come in real contact with what was happening in the South uh, and also in parts of the North. But it was an introduction to both leaders in the South, but also to the, the whole conditions that existed. And Baldwin was just amazing in his intellect, and also the fact that we were always in a crisis mode. So that there's a number of people I've met in my life who really live on one crisis after another. 
and it sort of motivates them and I think keeps them warm. And Jimmy certainly had that quality. Uh, we never made an airplane by more than a few seconds and sometimes we had a charter because we missed the airplane. And in general, it was like that. But we, we met with people like Medgar Evers, who we went to his house and Medgar Evers put a towel over our rental car's license plate, which was more a joke than anything in the sense that we knew that we were all on surveillance. And three months later, he was shot in his driveway and killed. I met with James Meredith and with uh, Jerome Smith, who was one of the original Freedom Riders. And basically traveling with, with Jimmy, uh, I saw so much. And after that, I kept coming back to the South and I was in various parts of the South. I covered the summer of 64. I did a lot of more, a lot more work with Jerome Smith uh, and we went to Ruleville. We saw Fannie Lou Hamer, who I was surprised to see her sitting there with a white doll. We saw so much of a situation where people who wanted to get the vote were turned away, even if they had a college degree. And people who, who were doing menial or other jobs for white people knew that when they went to try to register, there would be reprisals and they would probably lose their job. They probably or very possibly would have a cross burnt on their lawn or there might be a spray of bullets hitting them or something worse. Do you have nightmares about any of those moments? I didn't have nightmares about it, no, but it just really changed my whole attitudes about what I had seen and just the importance of, of what the movement was in terms of changing things in a nonviolent way. Would you talk about your portion of this exhibition and how it's related to Baldwin's The Fire Next Time? What the book really did uh, was, it, it's funny, we, we, I was working on another book with Nina Weiner and Larry Schiller, and they were at my house, and suddenly we were looking at the pictures from that I took between 1963 and 1968. And we figured, how can we get this published? And they came up with the idea of coupling it with James Baldwin's text. Uh, and it's worked out very, very well. Uh, the coupling, I think, has been successful. I asked you about nightmares. Your photograph of Dr. Martin Luther King's motel room right after his murder was chilling. What was it like to be there documenting the room just hours after he was killed? It was a very emotional experience. Um, I first went to the rooming house where the assailant had stood in the bathtub and leveled his gun on the windowsill. And I saw on the wall a black handprint that could only have been made by someone standing in the bathtub. And 
I made the assumption that that was the assailant's handprint in the sense that people don't usually stand in a bathtub and put a dirty hand on the wall. And Life ran that picture uh, the following week. Um, I then went to the uh, Dr. King's motel room in the Lorraine Motel and Hosea Williams let me in. And I saw on a ledge Dr. King's attache case and it had a number of things, including a, a magazine called Soul Force. And in the room on the ledge were old styrofoam cups and old rumpled shirts and then a half-eaten sandwich. And then suddenly on the television, which was on that wall, the behind the image of the announcer came the image of Dr. King. And I photographed that all as one image, all three parts. And to me, it was very, very emotional in the sense that the physical man was gone forever. His material things remained, and yet Dr. King hovered over, over us. And for me, this is one of the most emotional pictures I've taken. We'll be back in a moment with civil rights photographer Steve Shapiro and Sheila Pre-Bright. You're listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to my conversation with civil rights photographer Steve Shapiro and Black Lives Matter photographer and author Sheila Pre-Bright. Sheila was born during the height of the civil rights movement, Her documentation of civil unrest began in 2013 with Ferguson, Missouri. In her book, 1960 Now, she captured social activists responding to the police shooting of Michael Brown and other young black men. Here, I asked about differences she's observed from the civil rights movement in the 60s to the current movement? I feel that there is a difference. Mr. Lonnie King, who started the Atlanta Student Movement, told me that when they took down the signs, he said racism didn't go anywhere, okay? And so what's happening now is the result of that. 
And with me photographing in 2013 and being around the young people, they feel that they're fighting the same fights their parents and grandparents are fighting. And I can, if I could say this like this, when I first started in 2013 up into 2016, I think there's a very big difference now with George Floyd. And I see Generation Z. They are the ones that's pushing the envelope for this because they are wanting to hold people accountable. And they're the most diverse generation in history. And they're using their social media platform for that because everybody's tired, but they are the ones that's carrying this burden that they're going to have that that's being that they're inheriting. So the difference that I see is how they organize versus back in the 1963s. It's just in a different shape and form. And as far as the violence is concerned, when I started in 2013, the violence was always with the police brutality, with the police officers, because in Ferguson, you have people in there that are called agitators and they're gonna get the crowd to move and do that and then that's what starts the violent part of it it's just right like right now with george the death of george floyd you have a lot of protesters under the brand of black lives matter like the alt-right or whoever else is in there that's doing the looting i was actually talking to one of the young people and here in Atlanta, when they had the protest here, it was on Friday, I wasn't there, but they actually told me this. They said that there was a group of people that didn't look like them that started breaking the storefronts and all of that. And they asked them to stop. And they said, what y'all don't understand, we're trying to help you. And I thought that was very interesting for that. So under the umbrella now under Black Lives Matter, you're having a protest within a protest. You've been photographing the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter. Actually, you have documented it all along. And with the recent protests of the police killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Amada Aubrey, and so many other black men and women. You make an interesting point about how Generation Z, which excites you very much because of their commitment, how they are putting their photos out on social media. And this has the potential to affect change because it's so emotional. You are an art photographer, and I'm wondering how the role of photography has changed since Steve Shapiro's days when a photographer accompanied Dr. King and other leaders of along the path to the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. How has your role changed? 
I, I think with the technology, it has changed that. Everybody is photographing and everybody is uploading their the imagery on their social media platforms to get the news out because generation the young people, and I always say Generation Z, I'm saying Generation Z now, is that's where they go to get their news. It's not necessarily CNN, MSNBC, it's none of that. So technology and these social media platforms are the reasons why the role of photography is changing. And now since, I keep saying George Floyd, is you have a lot of young photographers are now saying, you don't need to show the protesters because you're putting them in harm ways. And I find that very, very interesting. So what they, there was a young man that written to ICP, International Center of Photography, and he wanted them to take down the recent protest images, or if they didn't take them down, is to blur the faces. So I had to think about that because I was saying, even back in Steve's day, it was the photograph that, sh that had the power to change. And when you blur out the image, I don't think it has that same effect at all. So technology is what has changed us and everybody is photographing, you know, everybody is. Well Photography had a big effect in the 60s as well, in the sense that in Birmingham, when what would probably have been a peaceful uh, rally in a park, because Bo Connor turned the dogs and hoses on everyone, and Charles Moore was a photographer there, and he did, he photographed all of this, and Life magazine ran it for eight pages. And suddenly America became aware of what was happening in the South. The civil rights movement was predominantly in the South. What's happened with, with George Floyd is that it's really caused the entire country. I mean, the, the marches throughout the country have been amazing, absolutely amazing. We just have to make sure that they don't get subverted by these violent things that happen. Yes, it went global. And I think for everybody to experience this on TV, even though we've constantly seen the imagery of black males or women being shot, this one was totally different. To see the police officer on his neck and he's begging for his life. And what really got me and brought me to tears is when he called out his mother. And I was saying, this has to stop. And these young people keep seeing this. They're living in an age where I don't know at your age, Steve, is they're constantly seeing these images on social media and it's constantly happening even after George Floyd. I just saw a video about how this cop was hassling these young kids in, in a little town called Waycross, Georgia. And it's still not stopping. So can you understand, I'm not asking to you, but understand the trauma from generations to generation. I think about my ancestors, their trauma. I think about my parents, 
trauma because they grew up in Jim Crow era. I think about these young kids now and their trauma, and I thought about John Lewis and imagine his trauma, and it's nonstop. Steve, how did it feel for you to be photographing these very frightening, divisive times as a white man during the civil rights movement? Well, I photographed then, I still photograph. And I, I photographed Black Lives Matter, I photographed protests. All of this is something that we all have to work at. That's, that's all. And photographs do help in a big way. Both of your photographs have been shown side by side before at the High Museum in 2018. Sheila, that's when we last spoke. Why is it important for audiences to see these images side by side now as they will appear at Jackson Fine Art? I think it's, it's part of history in the making then and now. And I think we must not forget. Also, I think that with Steve's photographs and my photographs, we need to learn from that, you know, from generations to generation. And hopefully, and I keep talking about Generation Z, that this will not, I'm not going to say it's not going to happen again, but I think it's perpetual. But to keep it in the minds and hearts of people, even though it's traumatic to look at these images and to experience this. And I think it's good for younger people. I think we need to start at three years old on up in secondary schools for them to learn of this. Because I know when I was growing up, I didn't know too much about the civil rights movement. And I think it's time now for us to deal with the reality of this. And I don't think that this country has dealt with the reality of this. No. Sheila, I spoke with the education director at the High Museum, along with the children's book author, Andrea Davis Pinckney, the other day. And the High will open an exhibition this weekend of 80 works depicting illustrations from children's books about the civil rights movement. And some of these are picture books, little story books that you would read to a three or four-year-old. And they talking with them was very inspiring because they've said children process much more than we imagine about strife and struggle. And if you can present it to them in a way that isn't terrifying, but is serious, they get it. Right. I believe that because at the age of three, that's when they start learning about self. And at the age of six, they know who they are. So I think it has to start that early. Children are natural geniuses. And it's a question of, of how we deal with, how we, how we teach them or what they see in terms of how they form themselves. 
I know that you both will give a virtual artist talk over Instagram this Friday for the opening at the gallery. What will you be discussing? (laughs) I think we'll be discussing the work and our experience. And I will learn from you, Steve. I will actually learn from you. Um, No, you learn from the world. You learn from our civilization. You learn from where we are today. You learn from the problems we have today, the incessant problems that are still there. That's what you learned from. Civil rights photographer Steve Shapiro and photographer, author, and activist Sheila Prebright. Jackson Fine Art Gallery is showcasing photos from their works in celebration of the fire next time and 1960 now through September 19th. The exhibition is open in person by appointment only. This is City Lights on 90.1 WABE. Atlanta. There are numerous picture books with stories for young children reassuring them that they are not alone and will not be abandoned. The runaway bunny comes to mind. Many of those stories are told by the mother, not as many from a father's point of view. Daryl Farley is an Atlanta educator with a new storybook for black children. He joins us now via Zoom. Daryl, welcome to City Lights. Hey, thank you for having me. You've talked about how there was one night in particular that inspired you to write this book. Would you tell us about that evening and what happened? Well, I had just finished reading my son uh, children's book. I always read him a bedtime story. It's kind of one of our favorite bonding moments that we have with each other. And um, after I read it, it just kind of hit me that there weren't many books speaking from a father's perspective and mainly from a black father's perspective. It hit me and I was like, maybe I should write him a book, you know, just from my perspective to him. And I told my wife and she told me, you know, maybe you should publish a book for them. And that led to I Will Be Here. Correct. Something that I've always wanted to tell my sons, I guess just from me not having a father figure when I was younger. So it's kind of something that I always wanted to just let my kids know that I will always be here for them, just speaking from the heart. And the book kind of goes through different milestones that I felt like I missed out on with my father and that I wanted to make sure that I was there for them. It's a very sweet story. Can you give us just an overview of the plot, uh, the gist of the story? So it starts off with me talking to my wife's uh, belly with my first son in her um, stomach and just letting them know that I'll always be here because I know the importance of black fathers in their children's lives. And it goes on a journey from when he's born until he's, you know, reaches different uh, milestones during school and uh, college, his career. And when he, you know, even when he starts his own family, I'm always there with him, 
including my wife, as he has his kids, making sure he did the same thing that I am doing for him, just talking to his kids and just being in their lives. You mentioned that your father wasn't around for much of your youth. Would you say that absence of a relationship with your dad influenced the creation of this book? Uh, yes, heavily. A lot of the things that I wanted from him, it's kind of the, I always say he made me the father that I, I am today because of the things that I wanted and that I didn't uh, receive. So I know when I became a father that those are the things that I wanted to give and instill into my kids. I wondered here, is this book as much a story that seeks to complete what a child in a single parent household is experiencing as it is racial? Yes, for both. That's what a lot of my uh, reviews that I got back from writing the story was, you know, it's from a black father's uh, perspective, but it's all from also from a single parent home, just from the father, just being there, even if the parents are not together, just making sure that they have a, a relationship so the child will feel, you know, the the love from both parents. Yes, but you you specifically describe this as a book for black children. Why did you conceive it that way? It's just because there's a negative narrative that goes on that black fathers aren't in their children's lives. And just growing up, I I saw black fathers in their lives, even though it wasn't in my lives or my family or my friends. So I just thought it was important for uh, just from a black perspective to let the uh, to change the narrative of black fathers being absent but also for them those fathers who are not in their children's lives to step up and be able to read something almost like an oath to let the kids know that they will always be there with them let's talk about the illustrations they're lovely how did you find the artist who painted them well when i put it out on twitter that i wanted to write a book from a black perspective a high school friend of mine she introduced me to uh, um, the illustrator, Jessica Jones. And um, just talking to her, I was just, I gave her my story and just hearing her ideas, I knew she would be the right person. Just seeing different, some of her illustrations from my previous work, I knew she would be the perfect person. I imagine you have read the book to your own children. What has been their response? My four-year-old son, he um, smiled. He was just excited to see himself in a book. He just kept wanting to go back to the uh, one of the first pages where I'm holding my youngest son and he's next to me. And as I read it to him, the, you can see the, in the illustrations of the children, the boys are a resemblance of my son. So he kept asking, is that me? Is that me? <laughs> and I was letting him know, yes. And he, uh, he kind of got a little uh, nervous. I know he's four, but it was when he's, uh, married and when he starts a family and he said i have a son and I, <laughs> <laughs> yes you know hopefully so it was just i know he's young to kind of understand but he uh he just enjoyed it he loves to look at the book and he uh tells you know people that come and buy our house that that's my book that's that's my book that you know look i'm famous and i'm only four <laughs> right <laughs> how about your older son 
He's my oldest, my four-year-old, and oh. I have a six-month-old. Oh, my. Well, I don't know if he is able to comment on the book yet, but I bet he responds to being told a story and being held close in your lap and looking at pictures. <laughs> yes. I just want to, I also wanted to, something for them to give to their kids, you know, when they were, when they start a family to, look, my dad wrote this book, you know, when I was young and maybe encourage them to write something for their kids. Daryl Farley, this has been very enjoyable. I think the book is sweet. The illustrations are lovely. And I think your family's very lucky. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Daryl Farley is the author of I Will Be Here. There will be more information on the book on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. Mourning the loss of a loved one comes in many different forms. In the play She Kills Monsters, the central character uses the game Dungeons and Dragons to find a way to connect with her younger sister following a fatal accident. Elm Street Cultural Arts Village in Woodstock has filmed their production of She Kills Monsters, so viewers can enjoy it from the comfort of their homes. WABE's Kevin Rinker spoke with director Zach Stoltz and actor Libby Williams about the play. So, Zach, give me an overview of She Kills Monsters. She Kills Monsters is a play about a young woman named Agnes Evans, 24, 25, 24, Libby? 24. 24, who um, two years prior to the start of the play lost her sister and her parents, her younger sister and her parents in a car accident. And in the process of cleaning out their old house has found a homespun D&D adventure module that her sister wrote for her to play. And she embarks on a quest of sorts with one of her sister's old friends to kind of learn more about her sister through playing this D&D module. And so the play kind of bounces back and forth between the real world of Athens, Ohio, and the fantasy world where she's interacting with her sister's D&D character and these other characters in her party and going on an adventure to the quest to save the lost soul of Athens. D&D, for those who don't know, is Dungeons and Dragons, which is a role-playing game in which players create characters with different skills that they use to navigate a fantasy world created by the so-called Dungeon Master or DM. And as they encounter different challenges from puzzles to monsters, players often roll dice to determine how a scenario plays out. Zach, did you have a previous interest in D&D before directing She Kills Monsters? Yeah, I've always been kind of interested in it, but never had the right friend group to make that happen. And then when I was in grad school a couple of years ago, I was listening to the podcast, The Adventure Zone by the McElroy brothers. And that really urged me to get started. And so in the limited free time of grad school, uh, I would get people together and we would play, you know, once every realistically like two months. <laughs> Libby Williams, you play the central character, Agnes Evans in this production. 
Was D&D a part of your life before being cast in She Kills Monsters? It actually was. I also played in college with a big group of friends. I've, I even played with somebody in the cast. So it was, it's right at home. Very familiar with the subject. You know, with D&D having a reputation over the years from being uncool to even some thinking it's a little demonic or something along those lines. Does this play challenge with or have fun with those stereotypes surrounding D&D? Absolutely. Not so much the demonic cult aspect of it. Interesting as that stuff is. Right? The Tom Hanks movie Mazes and Monsters and all that weirdness. But the geekery of it and the the stereotype of geeky things only being for geeks. And they, they throw that right out the window. Kui Gwyn, the playwright, he's expressed surprise that the 2011 play has kind of taken on a life of its own, just referring to its continued popularity. What about the work makes it something that has such widespread appeal? I think there's a couple of elements there. It's just on a, like a technical level. If you look at the, the, the cast itself, it skews younger, right? Agnes being the oldest character in the play, and she's 24. So that makes it a really good show for colleges, high schools, and certain regional theaters and theater groups to do. And then on another level, it's I think it's just such a highly theatrical piece, right? With the with how it weaves the storytelling of the Dungeons and Dragons world into the real world. And it's a really exciting piece because there's lots of stage combat and lots of imagination. And then it's a story with a really big heart. So it's got all the frills, but it also like at its core, it's a very honest and true story about grief and processing grief. And then it's just a bunch of exciting stuff. You know, it's really, it's a really fun technical show to build from the the props and the monsters and the set and then the physical challenges for the actors um, as well as the emotional ones it's also really funny yeah Yeah, it's a fun funny good time the module or dnd campaign that agnes is playing was created by her sister like you said her sister tilly how does agnes use that module to help her cope with the loss of her sister their relationship, when Tilly was growing up, her little sister is named Tilly, it was so surface level and shallow and they never really connected. And Tilly kept a lot of secrets from her older sister and she put all of them into this module. And so as Agnes plays it and goes along, she's discovering all of these things that she never knew. And knowing that her little sister wrote them down for her brings her such great comfort. And, and by the end, she has this big picture of who her sister actually was. And it's so heartfelt and heartwarming. And do you think Tilly was using it as a way to cope with her reality when she was alive, the game, or even just knowing that she was, she was writing this out for Agnes? Yeah, I think it was, like a, it was like a love note. It was like a hope and a dream that one day she could connect and say these things out loud. But at the moment, at, at the moment in her life, she couldn't. So she took them to paper in hopes that maybe, you know, one day that conversation would come to fruition. Was Tilly writing this under the assumption that someday she would get to play it with Agnes? You know, we've, we've talked about this a lot as actors. And, and um, I, I totally think that this was more of like a fantasy thing. I don't think that Tilly would have ever sat down and played it with her. There's some more darker tones to why she 
maybe wrote this, maybe something that, you know, was more of like a goodbye note to her older sister. I don't know if she would have ever like sat down and actually played it. What do you think, Zach? I sat down with Emily Haynes, the actress who played Tilly. We we discussed three to five different hopes and options and outcomes for this module, which range from one day you get to sit down with Agnes and this is how you let her into your world to some of the options like the goodbye note and things like that. At that point, then I just kind of left it up to her. Part of the you know magic of of acting is the nebulous nature and I said just pick one and run with it every night and see what sits and hits home because there's one of those little secrets that nobody but her needed to know and with there being so many different options for it we just I went hey whatever you were playing tonight that's what works and so I don't know where she went from there so just from a from a production standpoint during rehearsals and that kind of thing Libby did you try and only interact with Emily as though she weren't Agnes's living sister and and just kind of keep it to a a fantasy world or or were there discussions about like hey you know when we were alive this is how things might have been I was actually really lucky I've done a couple productions with Emily so I have a like a deep bond already with her that was nice to come into that rehearsal process and already have that trust we, we would like sit down and have talks about like, oh, this was definitely an argument we used to have as sisters. There weren't ever like a lot of <laughs> really happy memories that uh, Tilly and Agnes, our characters shared. It was more of, we would discuss like frustrations. There's arguments that come up in the play that like definitely these sisters have had before. And we would discuss that, but it, it was really a, a, a pleasure to get to work with Emily having that big shared background of the plays we've done in the past together. How does the play or how did y'all decide to distinguish the so-called real world of Agnes with the fantasy world in the D&D module? Are audience members kind of watching a party play D&D or are we transported into that fantasy world? Where's the line? How do we cross it? We are, we are fully transported. When I was first having production meetings for the show, the scenic designer, lighting designer, and production manager, Brian, asked me, what do you want on the set? And I said, I mostly just want wide open space. And Chuck, the dungeon master in the show, has a knack for popping out and kind of just transporting Agnes into it. And then we make a shift with the lights. We use a little bit of the old theater magic. And then the, the rest of her, her party, her team, just emerge. And we're in it. Uh, monsters pop out, bugbears will hop out and attack, and kobolds. And the play does a pretty kind of leads you there. Because um, the further we get into the story, the more both the worlds start to blur together for Agnes. You know, with uh, Tilius the paladin, or Tilly, showing up in Agnes's classroom where she teaches as she's dealing with some real world students. And so there's no sitting down and rolling some dice at a table. That's far too static. As one would imagine, D&D includes lots of fights between the party and monsters or even within the, a party, depending on what the situation is. Zach, in addition to being the director, you were also the fight choreographer for this work. What were some of the challenges you faced planning out the scenes, especially for filming? So, and, and Libby, please chime in. Libby, my assistant fight choreographer on this one, which uh, a role I knew I wanted her to fulfill 
from the moment this contract was offered to me. Zabi is one of the most spectacular fighters I've worked with. So probably the, the trickiest thing about choreographing for this show is just how how many people are on stage at any given moment, and then the variety of weapons. I've never choreographed for a Warhammer, a quarterstaff, or a battle axe before. Most of my stuff has been swords, knives, and hand-to-hand combat. And so adding really long weapons with some some kind of tall people too, so the reach is just massive and a very busy stage. I'll, I'll be honest, I never really thought about it for for film exclusively and and just treated it like the the stage version. And when we're approaching that, we just go, well, what story do we want to tell with this fight, right? Fights are cool, fights are fun, but if they're just swinging swords at each other for no reason, then what does that get us? So how can we tell a story and advance the narrative or at least inform the audience about the characters through this fight? Halfway through the show, there's a fight montage. And in the stage directions in the script, it just says they they fight a bunch of characters or fight a bunch of monsters. And it's really cool. And cool music is playing. And so with that much open space, it's like, well, what can we do to help tell our story we decided to use part of it fighting monsters yes and then intersperse it with a training montage for agnes where she fights each member of the party as if they are training her to be better which is a bit elusive to the actual idea of D where it's a lot of luck and timing and you know dice rolls but it was really fun to watch our actors spar off with each other and to watch libby piece together this idea that agnes just continued grow in skill and confidence and comfort in the world of D&D. Libby, what's it like being assistant fight choreographer, like Zach was saying, in addition to doing the fighting? <laughs> it's really awesome. I, when I first started doing fight choreography, it terrified me. When I was a freshman in college, it was something that I wanted no part of. But I've done so much of it, and I've been able much like my character in She Kills Monsters, Agnes, I've been able to get super comfortable with it to the point where I feel comfortable helping other people get comfortable with it. And with this show, I think the sheer amount of fighting that I had to do, it it just made sense. I was really familiar with every fight. I think there were only two that I wasn't in. Before every show, we had to do a fight call for safety. You know, we run all the fights to make sure that it's in our bodies and we're not forgetting anything. And that fight call lasted an hour every day. So what format should audience members expect to see Elm Street's production in? I I read that some companies are doing everything over Zoom, thanks to an adapted virtual version of the play. But I believe you film this on stage. Is that correct? That's correct. This is a fully staged, fully put together production as if we were going to have live audiences. We created it with that artistic intent, not that practical intent, but that artistic one. And then Elm Street brought in a wonderful camera crew and we filmed from five, six different angles, something like that, two nights in a row with uh, multiple cameras all over the place and close-ups and all these kinds of things. And I sat down next to Brian, our production manager, at some monitors and I said, okay, there's going to be people popping in over here. We need to, like, you know, trying, trying my best to pseudo direct but really navigate traffic so that he could be on headset and tell the cameras where to be to get ready so that when the editing process comes to they've got 
everything covered as well as they can. Had you directed a play for film instead of for a live audience before? No, never. The most experience I have with that is a couple of plays that I directed. Somebody set up a camera on a tripod and left it halfway through the audience. But that was more for archival purposes ever than for the intent of putting it out there like this. Libby, how does it change being on stage during rehearsal and and just during this entire process, knowing you won't have a live audience or a full house? I mean, I'm sure there were people here and there, be it just those who weren't in your scene at the time or people dropping through watching and and that might have given you some feedback. But but knowing that you weren't going to have a live audience watching you, did that change how you approached it? I don't think it changed how I approached it. When you have a live audience, you get that instant like gratification and like feedback and, and you can tell like how you're doing up there. Are they vibing with you? What is the energy? And it's certainly weird to not have that uh, with a live show. I mean, that's, that's why I love live theater. You have that connection with all of the other humans in the room watching. So it didn't really change how any of us were performing or acting, but it was kind of, you felt the loss. You felt, it always felt like a dress rehearsal, if that makes sense. Zach and Libby, thanks so much. I really appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yay. Actor Libby Williams and director Zach Stoltz talking with WABE's Kevin Rinker about the production of She Kills Monsters from Elm Street Cultural Arts Village. The play is available for streaming now. There will be more information on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. Our theme music is The First Time, written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden are our producers. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. You can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Here's wishing you a safe and good weekend, and thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.